This is an ABC podcast. Do you find you have repeated issues in your relationships? Negative patterns, like maybe you really struggle when your partner is away or find you go out of your way to avoid having difficult conversations. Maybe you're a huge commitment phobe or you get super clingy after one date. Well, it might have started way back when you were just a little baby in response to how your parents treated you. This is attachment theory, and it's become a popular way of understanding our adult relationships. But is it legit, really? And how could you use it to actually help find better quality love? I'm Nat Tenchich, and in this bonus episode, we are taking a very close look at what attachment theory can do for you. Doctors Stephen Andrew and Zoe Krupka are psychotherapists who work closely with attachment theory and the role it plays in relationships, and they use it to help their clients with their relationship issues. And they're here to help you work out your attachment style and apply it to your own dating habits. They're two of our faves on the hookup, and they're also a married couple who have taken the attachment theory lens to their own relationship. So I started right at the top. Give us the brief. What the heck is attachment theory? Well, attachment theory is really a developmental theory, right? So it's a, it's a theory about how we come to be how we are. Um, so, you know, if you did high school psych or whatever, you'll have Piaget in there, for instance. So attachment theory is really trying to explain how we come to relate to other people and the world. And we learn that by uh, our relationships, our first primary relationships. So with whoever took care of you when you were tiny and vulnerable, um, helped set your expectations about how trustworthy the world was and how you felt about your own needs and being close to other people by the way they responded to you. So in a nutshell, that's attachment. Okay. So very like, very informative about how we form relationships as we get older. Totally. Totally. Well, it cuts right into our identity, Nat, who we are is formed in large part by how we are raised, particularly in those pivotal six to 30 months. They're the the key months for attachment theory. That period of time really forms uh, the basis of our identity. I guess like attachment theory really makes me think about, I guess, the constant nature versus nurture conversation and would, I guess, argue or posit that nurture is more important? Like how accurate is attachment theory, I guess, considered in um, the psychological world? Like, does it hold a lot of water? It's, uh, well, probably like um, climate change or the efficacy of vaccination, the, the idea that your first 30 months are formative in terms of your identity and your way of being in the world, I think is pretty incontrovertible. In terms of um, nature versus nurture, I mean, I think one of the criticisms of attachment theory is really that we tend to kind of blame the parent, right? It's it's your mom, particularly, it's her fault. And the problem with that is, of course, everyone's parenting in a context. Everyone is parenting nested in kind of a family, a society, and all of those things impact how your parents treated you when you were tiny. It gets criticized a lot 
because it's so much like a conspiracy theory, right? It explains everything. And the reality is, of course, I'm going to have a genetic makeup um, and that's going to impact to a certain extent how I am. But what happens with that genetic makeup is really hugely influenced by environment and definitely my way of being close to other people and how good I feel about being close to other people is you know, fundamentally and primarily affected by how someone felt about being close to me when I was a baby. Wow. And so, you know, it means that it really is like informing the relationships that we have now. Um, how does it actually impact the relationships we have as adults if we haven't um, examined um, these patterns? I like the word patterns being used here. It's so important in um, attachment theory to talk about patterns. They're the things that are set up, as I was saying, they're the things that are set up really early. And we'll kind of continue on unless there's some sort of intervention. And that's a good thing in so many cases. Our language, for example, we don't have to relearn whenever we get out of bed every morning. We This patterns, the stuff that my mum, my dad taught me around language persist. Um, and also the patterns that I received um, as a kid in terms of my attachment, they persist too. I can change them. I can alter them. But they keep going and they do persist and hold their pattern unless you actually step in and do something with that. If you look at how these persist and how these relationships exist with your friends, with your workmates, and particularly with your lovers, the people you're most intimate with, you'll see a direct line back if you look and know how to look back to your parents or your caregiver. Um, a common pattern here is the pursuer distancer pattern where you get somebody wanting more intimacy in a couple and the other person saying hey back off a bit you're too close and that distance tends to encourage the person pursuing to pursue harder and they end up chasing each other metaphorically around the relational space so that's a classic pattern a relational pattern that comes out of attachment theory and that's set as a baby, right? That comes from mm. when I was a baby, if I was a baby and the only way I could get my needs met was being as loud as possible for as long as possible, that's what I'm going to do as an adult, not necessarily to cry, but to pursue, yeah? And, you know, if you're that kind of mover away person, you're going to be the baby that only got his needs met like you did when you were small by being quiet and good and you know essentially needless yes and and we tend to get together you know as we did well that's a that's, <laughs> that's, we that's psych in action, psych in action. <laughs> and that's a meta pattern that's a really common pattern for people with uh, an anxious um, attachment style and an avoidance style to find each other very attractive and drawn to to the other well, let's talk about styles um, before we go any further and just define those. So attachment theory says that there are a few different kinds of um, ways that you generally attach to people. Um, could you explain what those are and what they look like? So the, the best and easiest division, I think, is between the anxious style and the avoidant style. So if you have an anxious style, it means that when you had a need as a baby and you expressed it, you were responded to with anxiety. 
um, oh my God, what does this baby need? Or maybe you were responded to, um, you know, indirectly or not predictably enough. So that means that if I have an attachment style that's anxious, I'm worried about my relationships. I feel like I've got to fix things. I'm going to ring someone up after we have an argument and just kind of check, is everything okay? Um, I'm going to take lots of responsibility in relationship. Or if you're more avoidant, your needs were responded to really kind of blankly. Maybe your parent was unavailable or depressed um, or substance using or very busy. And you're going to respond to your own needs with avoidance, like you don't need anything. And you're not going to seek to be close to people when things are difficult. So if I was really anxious and Stephen was really avoidant, I would pursue him and he would say, you know, I need, I need space. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Like a wounded animal, I would find a quiet corner somewhere rather than seek the comfort yeah. that might be coming from you. So that's the biggest split, anxious and avoidant. And then if you had a hugely disruptive and really unpredictable and neglectful childhood, you can end up with something called disorganized attachment, which really means no set pattern in the way you form relationships with people and no real sense of attachment at all. Um, and that's, of course, much rarer. And then there are lots of subtypes in there, but in general, those are the three biggies. Who, like... Do you get patterns of, you've mentioned a couple of patterns of relationships where um, someone anxious might go for someone avoidant because it's what they're used to or, or whatever. Um, how does your type impact the type of person you're attracted to? This is a process, I think, Matt, that of trying to work out and get the love that you didn't get when you were very small. And when we're talking about attachment styles that are not secure, the anxious attachment and the avoided attachment, most likely what you received as a small kid was conditional love. I will love you, but not if you don't clean up your room. I will love you if you do well at school. I will love you if you behave in the way I think you should. But if you don't, I'm going to withdraw that love. Unconditional love is the stuff we organically, fundamentally desire. And it's top shelf. It's, it's often hard to get. Uh, and if we get that, we get that secure attachment well we're in a much better place to get that secure attachment style set up so you yeah so in relationship what that means is that I'm what I'm looking for is that unconditional love but what I'm used to is a particular way of being responded to and so I will end up with that over and over and over again because I don't recognize the other kind of thing as love so as an example, you know, I have a, a really close friend we met many years ago. It was our first day of a course and he came bounding up to me like a Labrador and said, <laughs> I really like you. And I thought, who are you, crazy man? I don't want you anywhere near me. <laughs> and that was a really pathological, I'm glad we're friends now, but it was pathological uh, <laughs> response on my part. Because to me, that was not what I was used to. That was kind of a normal kind of expression of I really like you. But to me, it was like there must be something wrong with it, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of, you know, explains a lot about the people I've ended up in relationship with who have tended to be much more reserved. So that's, that's kind of how the pattern gets set up is that I'm, I'm wanting unconditional love I'm wanting what he was offering me in his kind of Labrador mode but mm. I can't feel comfortable with it 
It's like a foreign language yes. in a sense. It's, yeah. yeah, I misread it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned their um, secure attachment, which I guess is the attachment style we didn't talk about. <laughs> Nothing to say. <laughs> the good one. <laughs> so, uh, what is secure attachment, and how um, how does that develop? So secure attachment develops really when your caregiver is predictable, when they're not overly anxious about how to care for you. So when they trust themselves and they're able to trust their responses to you and when their environment is more secure. So you, you don't develop secure attachment during wartime. You don't develop secure attachment if you've had your land stolen. You don't, so all of those kind of systemic um, factors play a part, but it's really about predictability, trustworthiness in your care and your responses. And, you know, quite a few of us had that. Um, so it means that, you know, um, we will end up in relationships with other people who are secure. Yeah, because relationships across, significantly across attachment um, pattern don't, don't last. A secure person is not going to put up with the kind of crap you dish out when you're really anxious or really avoidant, aren't they? <laughs> They're not. They're not. No. Absolutely. <laughs> so how do you work out what your style is? Well, Matt, look at your relational history. Go back and have a look at the people you've been intimate with um, sexually and platonically, particularly around when you have left or when you have been left by that person. And I don't mean necessarily the end of the relationship leaving, but your partner going off to work or going on a holiday by themselves or something like that. What's that feeling give you? Is it a sense of absolute desperation? Particularly important to look at what happens when they come home, when they return again. Are you kind of cool and, oh, it's you. Hey, do you have a good time? Good. Is it sort of cold and aloof? Are you clingy and desperate? I haven't been able to stop thinking about you. Or are you, as a secure, someone with secure attachment, able to go, I am thrilled to see you. Tell me about your holiday. I'll tell you about what I've been up to. It's lovely to see you, but I'm not kind of desperate for you like oxygen right now. That is such a good example. I reckon the going away on holiday. That's mm. really good. Yeah. Well, that comes out of the, the, the experiment that really set up attachment theory that uh, Mary Ainsworth set up with babies and mothers and the mothers being asked to leave a space and then come back. And they watched what the babies did when the mothers came back. Most of the babies cried when the mothers left and they were talking toddler baby age. But when the mothers came back, there was a range of responses. The secure was, oh, good to see you. Lovely to see you. They came up, then they went to play. There were responses of distance, like, I'm not even going to look at you. I know you've entered the room again, but I'm going to keep playing with my toy here. And that's when, you, that's when your partner's been overseas for a year and it takes you, you know, another three months to warm up to them. Yeah, that's, it. that's the grown-up version. <laughs> and obviously the anxious kids would run up screaming and not be comforted, not feel comforted when mum took the baby in, in the arms. They remained upset. You've yeah. gone, you've gone, you've gone, and it's, it's a, a deeply distressing event for them. So that's where this came from. So that's like in a relationship, you know, when you get upset or you have a really big argument, that anxious attachment style particularly takes a long time to settle, even after a kind of a repair and apology, 
they're still upset about it for a really long time. And that's the kind of emotion regulation part of attachment where you can't soothe yourself really easily or be soothed. Or if you're avoidant, you're kind of more frozen to it. You kind of, you know, cut off. A more direct answer to your question is that there are a number of uh, sites on the internet. It's a fairly simple test. It doesn't take long to do. Um, where at the end of it, they'll present you with your attachment style. It sounds a little bit, um, you know, in some ways sounds a little bit like uh, like Myers-Briggsy in the sense of like, who am I? Like, what is my style? But it, it's more it's more kind of grounded in science than that. Well, yes, it's, the short more, it's more grounded in science. <laughs> I guess I guess with any of anything that you would do um, from a from a full um, psychiatric diagnosis to a, a quiz on on the internet. Uh, I always suggest people hold this lightly and say, what does this result mean to me? Does this sort of ring any bells? Does it resonate with me? Oh, okay. I may have a particular attachment style in this case. Mm. Uh, really be aware when you do this that this is not set in stone and you're not sort of marked for life with whatever you've uh, you've come up with with an answer. Well, let's talk about that um, because you might be listening and thinking, oh no, I am anxiously attached or I'm um, avoidantly attached. I'm never going to have a fulfilling relationship or a healthy one. So how can you um, change your attachment style? Okay. This change can occur by engaging in relationships that have the qualities of a secure relationship. I can talk about this therapeutically. I can talk about it in terms of interpersonal relationships too. And those qualities are somebody who is able to offer you a sense of their presence, a sense of consistency, a, a warmth, compassion, a non-judgmental framework. I mean, and it doesn't have to be a lover or a partner. So it could be a friend. It can be a workmate. It can be a therapist. It can be, you know, anybody in the world that can offer you that. And this is the offering of that unconditional love that we were talking about before. And slowly over time, this is what can shift. You keep testing out the idea that this person is going to let me down, this person's going to drop me, this person's not going to come back. And they're consistent, they're strong, they're warm, they hold my gaze, they hold me in good stead. And over time, if this is consistent enough and rich enough in terms of enough contact if I've been sitting in one of those um, insecure attachment spaces I will start to move and begin to trust that this is okay and they're okay and I'm okay they're the things that have to line up if I'm okay you're okay we're okay we're secure there's love there's trust there's support there's warmth there's humanity there so it is about developing those sorts of relationships, either colloquially or through a more formalised setting of a, of a therapeutic relationship. And like you said, it can be a therapist, it can be a teacher, it can be a mentor. Mm. I mean, we all know people who've gotten into another relationship or a new friendship and been improved by it. And we all know people who've gotten into a relationship and really taken a nosedive. So these are you know, ways of assessing um, how relationships can really affect your attachment style. And over time, I've moved, 
you've moved into the secure quadrant, it can happen. It can be done. (laughs) So how does knowing all this, how can knowing all this help our relationships, you know, in the present? Um, How can it help the relationships we're currently in and the relationships that we're looking for if um, we're dating? So have a look at your own relational history. Is there a tendency to clingy dependence? Is there a tendency towards aloof independence? Or is there uh, a pattern where you are, it's a term David Snarch uses called interdependence. And this is this dynamic where it feels really, really good to be close to you. It feels really good to be away from you too. I have my own life. It's nice when we come together. It's also nice when we're apart. That's kind of ideal. So have a look at your relational history and have a look at your partner or partner's relational histories too. I find this sometimes in therapy, people will come in and say, oh, my partner doesn't want to talk about my exes or or their exes. And I go, what a rich field this is. Oh, they feel uncomfortable about it. They feel bad about it. They feel this, they feel that. I say, well, this is, this will play out again. You either do it with your eyes open or your eyes closed. It's going to play out. If your eyes are open here, with that awareness, you can actually start to make some changes. They want to know how you make those changes, so don't they? <laughs> do, people, do you think people want to know how they make Yes, those yes. Yeah. I think um, a how-to guide would be fantastic. Okay. Because I, yeah, I think the big thing is really, you're, you're absolutely right. First, we have to know, right? And part mm-hmm. of the way we know that is because of our history. But then we have to challenge it. So one of the patterns I know you see, Stephen, a lot in couples counselling is people who have an avoidant attachment style having a difficult argument and saying, I need some space. And right, they take like a month. You know, (laughs) it's like go for a walk for 10 minutes and come back into the room. So if I know that that's my pattern, I know I've got to stay in the ring. I know I have to be uncomfortable and to sit there in a difficult discussion and not to use my only way of coping, which is to move away and to put some other things on board. Like you get people to kind of self-soothe in that Mm. situation a number of ways, don't you? Yeah. So, yeah, stay with it. And if you can learn some tactics to soothe yourself. Breathing. Breathing is one. (laughs) Uh, To soothe yourself in that space, whether you're avoidant or anxious here, it doesn't matter. There's both need to be able to self-soothe because you will be distressed. You will be shaken up by the intimate engagement, particularly if if someone's unhappy with you or you're unhappy with them because it threatens again, even if it's someone squeezing the toothpaste from what I think is the wrong end, it threatens the stability of the relationship and could cascade into separation. And most people don't want that. And for people who are anxious, so for people who are avoiding, it's about staying in the rings, trying to stay close instead of just using um, moving away or leaving as a tactic. And for anxious people, it's about stepping back. It's about knowing, okay, I might want to, to call. I might want to call much more than you're comfortable with, and I'm going to need to limit that. I'm going to need to be quiet. I'm going to need to sit back a bit more and that's going to feel really uncomfortable and in fact if it doesn't feel uncomfortable you're not challenging that pattern because these are patterns of survival right so 
it's, it's going to be uncomfortable. But at least if I know that, if I know, oh my God, this is my history. I'm triggered by this. It's really hard. I want to call her. I want to call her. It makes it much easier not to do it, to kind of just breathe through it, to reach out to somebody else or someone more avoidant to stay connected, which is what you help people do in couples counselling. We've been talking a lot about content here, but there's a process here as well of reflecting and sort of hovering above this and going, as I'm feeling disturbed, as I'm feeling like I want to either grab hold of you and get desperate or to go and hide in a corner, I can actually put words to that effect into the space and say, I'm feeling really desperate right now. I just want to let you know. I'm going, to, I'm going to look after it myself, but I just want you to know that the, the wide eyes and the big mouth, this is me feeling what I'm feeling. And it really helps to be able to communicate, to leave the content of you've done me wrong or you're upset with this or whatever, to hover above that momentarily and say, right now I'm feeling... Mm, terrified. Terrified. Yeah. So do you think, like, if there's any type of, you know, are there any types of attachment styles or partnering combinations that just are not going to work ever at all, like are always going to be toxic. I'm thinking of what you were saying before about people with secure attachment Mm. not connecting well to people with insecure attachments for very long. It's just it doesn't have enough glue, if you like. There there isn't enough to hold the two different types of love in that space. Mm. Secure, secure tend to go together. Anxious avoidant tend to go together. Um, you mentioned the, we, we rolled through a few of them, you know, the secure, secure, anxious avoidant, but like, what about um, avoidant, avoidant or anxious, anxious? Do they, are they similarly destructive? Anxious, anxious often get together and can be in a frenzy. You might, you might've seen two anxious people. They're both anxious about their relationships. They, they might pursue each other. They might be, you know, workshopping things constantly in a state of high distress and intensity a lot. Avoidance when they get together. I mean, I don't know if you see them in couples counseling very often. They don't want to come in. They don't want to come in. They don't want help from anyone. They don't need help. But they're often couples that you see who are really comfortable living interstate from each other or who are managing that relationship by being far. And the problem with that is once there's a big problem, yeah, so once the, there's some kind of disaster, let's say the pandemic is one of them or somebody loses a job and is really depressed, they don't have any of the tools to manage it. So avoidance will just move away, move away from each other as a way of coping. So they will often drift apart um, and it, it will be hard for them to salvage their relationship. Mm. Yeah. Whereas anxious, two anxious people together can create an enormous amount of drama. Yes. You'll, you'll see two avoidance in restaurants. Remember restaurants? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> who, who have been you know, married for 20 years and have nothing to talk about. They're both reading the paper. They're just, <laughs> they're at the same table, but they're on different planets. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, so some good tips on how to, I guess, identify what sort of relationship you have. Um, how to manage that and change those things um, and how to work out for yourself what you are and what you're sort of attracted to and break your patterns. Um, before we wrap up, uh, do we have any more sort of practical advice to um, or final words to kind of leave 
paper with um, in thinking about this theory and how to maybe use it in their lives without, I guess, oversimplifying things. I would say, because you know how you said, go go through your past relationships. Yeah. I reckon we're really bad at that ourselves and that our friends are most much more trustworthy (laughs) so I would get a couple of friends and say look you know I read this book there's a few really good books on an attachment and I think I'm here and I think this is what my pattern is what do you think and kind of nine times out of ten your friend your friend will say "Mm, no actually I think you're in this quadrant your friend or a friendly ex will will help you sort of that friendly ex yeah Yeah. (laughs) I would I would add that This is difficult work. This is fundamental foundational work. Uh, I was going to say, don't try this at home. Don't try this. Try this at home, but get some support Mm -hmm. for this. Uh, I don't want to be spooking therapy here, but I'm going to spook therapy here because it can really help to have a third person in the space or a second person in the space to bounce this stuff off and to hold you metaphorically in that space while you are feeling anxious, while you are withdrawing, while you are dissociating, while you're going through your stuff, trying to work this out, to have someone there holding the gaze, which is a maternal parenting type phrase, really, Mm. watching you, listening to you, not judging you. We're back to that notion that there's some reparenting that can happen here in the presence of another. There is a tendency for people to do one of two things in therapy. And one is to blame the parents and say, I've been and I've spoken to mum and I've told her this and I've told her that and it's not working. Well, it's never going to work. You're an adult. It's not this woman or this man's responsibility now to change you and dress you and wash you and feed you. That's gone. Mm. Time's gone. They did what they did. And it's a terrible cliche. They did the best they did. They did what they did. Your job now is to, as an adult, pick up any slack that's happened there. I always say that if you're going to blame your mum, you've got to blame your mum's mum and your mum's dad. And then you've got to blame your mum's mum's dad and mum's mum's mum, blah, 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 backwards to Adam and Eve. And you get there, you find somebody along the way who was a mass murderer or a chronic alcoholic or gambled the fortune away. And you feel no better when you find out that great, 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 great uncle Charlie was a terrible person. You don't feel any better. And I don't know if that, like, if that's something for your, your listeners, but that's something that we hear all the time that people hate about attachment theory is that they want to think that it, their parents didn't impact them because they think they did a really good job and they might've done a really good job, but any number of things can go wrong, you know? And I guess the important thing is like the first, the first step is that is being conscious of it because that's how you can get to a place of healing. Yeah. Because otherwise you're thinking it's the other person's fault. Yeah. In rela- and that's the, the really toxic thing. You're making me feel anxious or you're mm. making, oh, I need to get away from you. And that's like, that will just keep repeating over and over again. Mona. No matter who you're with. No, that's the terrible thing. But yeah, you can so turn it around. And we, you know, we see it all the time. Right. I um, think there's lots that people can take away from that. Um, Zoe and Stephen, love talking to you as always. And thank you so much for sharing this wisdom on the hookup. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us.